Welcome to The Adapter's Advantage, the podcast that shares insider stories about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Get ready for an inspiring conversation about adapting to change from Alego, the all-in-one sales enablement platform built for success in a hybrid world. Let's dive right in. Hi, I'm Mark Magnaca. I want to welcome you back to the next episode of the Adapter's Advantage podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Sherry Lytle, the head of J.P. Morgan's Wealth Management Practice, joining us on the podcast. Let me give you a little background on Sherry before we jump into the call. Sherry's the head of practice management and advisor growth for J.P. Morgan Wealth Management. Her organization provides market insights, investment expertise, practice management, and tools to enable financial advisors to help their clients achieve their financial goals. Prior to joining J.P. Morgan Chase in April of 2018, Sherry was the head of advisor strategy and development at Merrill Lynch Wealth Management, where she led the advisor development program for 3,500 advisor trainees and implemented practice management strategies for 15,000 financial advisors. And uh, Sherry has a master's degree in business, human resources and labor relations, and a bachelor's degree in organizational psychology from West Virginia University. She resides in Charlotte, North Carolina with her twins, Luke and Abby, and she loves being on her boat at Lake Norman, attending live music venues and golfing with her son. And with that, Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate being here. So Sherry, let's jump right in. Uh, There's a lot of things you've done and there's a lot of things under the umbrella of what you do now. So when you meet people and they say, oh, you're with JP Morgan, what do you do? How do you answer that question? It's the hardest question I get because not everyone understands practice management unless you're in the industry. So basically what I say, and I just answered this over the weekend, um, is I help financial advisors deliver certain products and financial planning and have conversations with their clients. That's the big answer the high level, but basically all the tools, the the platforms they use as advisors to talk to clients, the training they get, um, how to have a conversation about their plan. My team of specialists will sit with advisors and their leaders and and coach and train to deliver that to clients so that the standard um, of care for the clients remains the same. And then the advisor growth part is just advisor training. So as a new advisor here at JP Morgan Wealth Management, you'll go through our advisor growth program. It's meant for any level of advisor. It's how we do business with clients and it's a two-year track. So Sherry, let's go back in time for a minute. I want to just rewind the tape a little bit uh, and have you tell our listeners a little, little bit about the start of your career and how this journey began for you and, and maybe even who influenced you along the way. Well, uh, I love this question because this one gets people. I don't think uh, if you know, if you don't know me, this wouldn't come through, but I am originally from West Virginia. I grew up in the mountains of West Virginia. My dad was a coal miner. My mom was a waitress. So financial services was not a thing, nor um, unless you count money under a mattress, that's about, <laughs> that, that's, that was the financial plan of my household. Um, but, you know, I did know at an early age, I wanted to go to college and there hadn't been anyone in either side of my family in any generation to go to college, but um, something didn't feel right um, there. It was a, it's a great state. It was a, it was a, you know, fine upbringing, um, but I wanted to do something different. Went to West Virginia loved the school, uh, was able to get a crack at a guy that ran HR for aircraft engines in Cincinnati, Ohio, another great place, gave me a shot. And I literally kind of interviewed and begged my way into GE and uh, ended up 
and the shop floor doing arbitration and union work, which I thought was a dream job at the time, um, but ended up in Charlotte uh, for Bank of America Merrill Lynch, spent 15 years there. And interesting thing, I can't say anyone influenced me on the financial aspect, but when I joined Bank of America, it was the first time I actually connected the emotion with money or not having it. So either whether you have it or you don't, um, I, I view the I viewed the banking industry as some foreign, like, what do you do? I mean, I was on the shop floor. What are we doing? Selling credit cards? I couldn't quite right. understand. But that was the first time that that was the influence for me to stay in financial industry is that I, I realized there was an emotional connection and that for someone like me, I could have given back to people that didn't make that connection. So that was what, what drove me to continue this career that I have today. So sure, I have to ask you just on that note, I remember when we were chatting earlier, you mentioned that um, when you started at GE, one of the things that was required for you was to travel. And um, you really hadn't traveled much before that, correct? I hadn't been on, I went on a plane one time to interview. And this was a paper ticket you got in the mail. Like you got a paper ticket and I was so excited to get the paper ticket. And then my first job, I mean, now looking at it at the time, I thought it was special, but I mean, I was 23 out of grad school. So they were thinking, let's ship the young kid off to 12 or 13 countries um, to break down Oracle HR systems and build them up. So I was in 12 or 13 countries and my first real flight was to Singapore. And I could not believe, I mean, you can only imagine having never flown but one time then to hop on an 18 hour flight to Singapore that actually ended up crashing on the way back that I wasn't on. I don't think I told you that. So it was was quite a story, Um, but it was uh, my first like reality check in life. Yes, you missed the flight on the way back, correct? Missed the original flight. And I, uh, I actually went early home. And everybody didn't know I went home, but I came home two days early in the original flight where it stopped to get gas in Taipei, Taiwan. It was in 2001, I guess, or 2000, I can't remember, um, had, had, had an engine problem there and, and I was already home. And I thought, okay, this isn't a good sign. Wow. But um, yeah, but it was a great experience to, to be able to do that. And I loved every second of it. Well, talk about swinging for the fences, right? Like um, my first flight is for an interview and my second flight in my life is to Asia, right? I mean, it's just, it's a, but it speaks a lot actually to what GE knew about the adaptability, particularly of young people who aren't set in their ways, because as far as you're concerned, like this is normal. This is just what you do, right? Well, I remember the interview like yesterday, I still keep in, in contact with the guy um, because he actually told me, he said, there's no earthly way I should hire you. You don't have the experience because all these people in grad school had had jobs before. And I was working at the Texas Roadhouse or something like it was not. But I, I came in, I had my only uh, professional outfit that I own. I slicked my hair back and said, you know, I can do this. And he said, there's no reason I should hire you. But I'm going to try this based on your background, and your grit. And he let me, you know, join the program and then he shipped me to 13 countries, which was, I was ready to do anything to make it work. Um, but that, that actually set me into a confidence zone of that I could probably do something then and, and do something and provide better than I had before. You know, there's a, there's a goosebump moment that just as you describe that, and I, I'm realizing, uh, Sherry, when you think about Chase and JP Morgan, um, you think about, say, 100 years ago, the kind of person who became a private banker, say, at J.P. Morgan, 
you know, advising a, a big, you know, wealthy family, right? And then you think about the skill set that's required today to, to deal with a range of different families. And one of those words that you just use, I, I see it coming up and I'm imagining someone who's hiring someone at, at uh, Chase even saying, look, you, may, you don't have the traditional background. Maybe you came from the military, you came from somewhere else, but you've got grit. And uh, grit really is a powerful element when you think about the ability to do a job that's totally separate from what people see on paper. Well, at the end of the day, people that can connect with people. So I, I just, when you said that, made me think I have a, a best friend of mine who ran a nail salon, was in nail tech for years. And she is now a branch manager at Chase. And she said to me, cause it was COVID and obviously the nail salons and the hair salons were shutting down and she needed employment. I said, I think you should apply for this branch manager. She said, sure, I don't know anything about money. I said, but you run a daily huddle on what to sell. You yep. make your follow-up appointment with clients right away. You have repeat clients for 20 years on one of them. <laughs> uh, you, write the, you write the training for the employees. Like, tell me which part. So you're going to go learn the operations of a branch. She's killing it as a branch manager at Chase today because she knows how to lead people, have tough conversations. She meets the clients at the door. She's client-centric. And that was so cool to see because I, if you ask me, am I, am I the best investment person in the world? I'm, I'm below average, but I, I know that I can help people connect dots, block and tackle, empathize, figure it out. And that would be the skill I would say on any profession right now, but that's how I see the world. So that's a segue to the idea of practice management. You've been in HR, you've been in banking, you've done lots of different things. And now you're in this practice management space, which I know you, you did previously um, as well. What is it about practice management that clicked for you? I'm not sure it was a click, but if you look at my background, again, this is my theory in life. Um, everybody's driven by something. Some people are driven by creativity. Some people are driven by technology. Um, I was always driven. I get fulfillment watching others thrive. I don't know why I can explain that even with my background, I can't explain it, which is why I was in leadership development HR for so long, because it was kind of cool to coach and see. I also have a unique gift of being very direct for better or for worse. So that was one thing I wanted to carry through. So practice management is really no more than helping others see their own potential. And it sounds so cliche, but that's what it is. So it's either cutting out the noise of the day or the week and actually helping advisors or, or leaders find what they need to solve a problem or be with a client, or it's sitting down and helping them, okay, you're not realizing your full potential. You know, you're missing these things or you need to add these things to grow and let me help you get there. And it takes a very direct person and you have to find people willing to listen. But the, when I was leading HR for Merrill Lynch Wealth at the time, I knew I got really jazzed up by the investment side of the business. Again, emotional connection to money, a lot of education needed in the marketplace. And I thought that was super cool. So I wanted to take that skill and do it in an investment business, not just all humans, but a very specific market. And that's the click, I guess, was that I noticed that financial services, investments in particular, a gap for us. It's a long-term play. And if I could get into a position, utilize my skill to then help just in that niche, then I felt like I can make a bigger impact. Well, what's really interesting about that, Sherry, that some people who aren't familiar with this term, I'm just going to provide a little different context. If you think about a doctor, a doctor has a medical practice in most cases. Maybe it's part of a hospital or it's their own practice. 
And for most doctors, you know, they went to school to be a scientist, in effect, as a medical doctor. And they don't know that much in many cases about uh, patient acquisition, about patient management software, you know, the things that send you a message and say you have an appointment with the doctor tomorrow. Like, that's not where they are. They're on trying to help or heal the patient. And so there's a, there's a whole cottage industry that sprung up to help doctors think about how do you code the files in your office to make it easy for your staff to know these are the ones that we have to have ready for the doctor today. Just like in many operating rooms, there's a team that's getting all the stuff ready so the doctor can do their job. Well, if you, tr if you take that metaphor and you port it over to the world of financial advisory, if the advisor is like the doctor, there's this whole support team. And what you recognize, the, the, the advisor has the job of, yes, doing all the things we've talked about, but they're also, in effect, managing a practice. And so what you just described, one of the things you and I have in common is I come from the world of practice management as well. I was also a practice management consultant, like the ones who are working in your organization. And, and an example of what you just described is I remember one time sitting with an advisor who said to me, look, I'm open to ideas on how to improve my business but I'm not really sure where to begin. And I asked him one question. I said, are you familiar with the 80-20 analysis of your book of business? He said, yeah. He goes, I've heard about that. He goes, but I don't think it applies to my business. I said, okay. What if we just did an analysis of the revenue that's generated by each of your clients and we, we organized it on a spreadsheet and we took a look at it together? And he said, I'm fine with that. So he had his people pull the, pull the report and literally it was... 11% of his clients generated 89% of his revenue. And what he discovered when we went through, I said, let's go through every one of these people. And he told me about where they came from. And I, I was writing it down. They came from a seminar. They came from an introduction to the company, like over and over again, they didn't come from cold calls, right? And so when we played it back, he said, those are the people, the people that you've just identified, there's only about 40 of them. Those are the ones that I, I, I love working with. I get excited to work with. And so that one insight literally shifted his business because he was now clear on this is the group that I can serve, that I'm a good fit for. And by the way, it allows me to say no to a whole bunch of the other ones that aren't a good fit for me. So that's the same connection you've just described. That's what got me excited. It was seeing that sometimes the application of one idea could transform somebody. Well, and it's so simple. So I, I talk a lot about and what I do today in the process of things. Um, and so practice management, we have a structured process that's just one or two things in terms of preparing before the client, um, you know, leveraging your team to make it seamless, uh, having the resources, knowing where to find stuff. Like there are very simple tactics that you can make someone's practice easier. But interesting, when you use the doctor analogy, because I use this a lot, if you think about what people care about today, they want to be healthy and they want to be able to retire and be healthy. So they need money and they want to be healthy. When you boil it down, maybe throw some kids in there, right? I have them too. I want them to be healthy and I want them to have a good life, but that's it. So finances is, is up there with, with me, but I have a question for you, if I may, because sure. in that doctor analogy, uh, what did the client, what did the patient see? Uh, you mean like when you're sitting in the when you're sitting in the waiting room? Yeah, I'm just curious what your what what your initial reaction is to that question. Yeah, and well, I'll my, give, it's a trick question, but I'll yeah, give well, you my my experience my experience is that too often the customer experience was awful. 
in the doctor's office. That, that's what my experience was. That in, in, for example, it wasn't that, um, for example, they said, okay, you're gonna go into this room, you're sitting on the crickly wax paper, and they said the doctor will be right in. I don't even mind if they said, hey, look, he's running 30 minutes late because he's got an urgent situation. Can you stand, stay with us? But they put me in the room and then 30 minutes would go by and nobody would even come, right? right. So all of a sudden, now I'm not even in the right state of mind. <laughs> and I know it's not the doctor's fault, but I feel like the practice isn't being run well. And it called, it called into questions a lot of other things. So well, that's, that's really it. what I thought. That's it. So what happens the same in financial industry and in practice management for advisors, you have to invite the client in. There's a lot of prep work that goes in, but the last thing I want to do is fill out an intake form, just like you do at the doctor's office. And then you go in and sit at the crinkly paper. And then you talk to the nurse in your case, and you say it again, even though you wrote it down. And then the doctor comes and you say it again. again exactly. So now you're 30 minutes late. You've written it down once. You've said it twice. And so we here, that's what we're trying to make it seamless with the client feels that it's seamless, even though there's a lot of prep work and a lot of intake and a lot of documentation to get there. Um, that, I think that's a perfect analogy for the analogy for the whole practice management itself. It really is. And I think every everyone can relate to it, Jerry, because look, there's sometimes it, it, you know, to use that medical analogy, it's sort of like when you have a system like we do, the thought that when you go to the hospital, you know, other than when you're being brought in by an ambulance, like the first thing is, hold on, I need your insurance card, I need your, your social security number, like, and you just got to go and then and then you get to the next room and you're doing it again. So even just the idea that JP Morgan has people thinking about how do we make the process better, like just that alone is something that that starts the process of improvement, because um, you're absolutely right in, in what you just described, the ability for the advisor to say, in advance of our meeting next week, I need you to send me these two documents so that I can have them reviewed when we get together. Now everybody's time's being used well. That's right, that's exactly right. Well, um, we definitely, we definitely, that could be a whole separate uh, That could topic. be a whole separate topic. Yeah. I got a lot on that. Yeah. Uh, so let, let me pivot just to your role though, because you've worked for some very large firms. You're, you're you know, running one of the, the largest firms. Um, JP Morgan has, through its Chase Wealth Management Division, one of the largest financial advisor um, organizations in the country. So one of the questions I'm curious about for many of our listeners is what's the most important element that you've learned related to deploying technology, whether it's financial planning technology or even sales enablement technology like Allego to a, to a large sales force? Other than it's hard, I guess even more <laughs> than that. Um, okay, so this is coming from someone who would have a, who actually has a rotary phone at home. Okay, so if I could if I could have no technology, it'd be okay. So I, I can, the reason I bring it up is I can speak to this generation and then what I see across all generations, age excluded, of how technology has become our number one thing we talk about. And it's not the technology. The quality of the technology is a right of entry. So, you know, places like JP Morgan, places like Lego, like you, or places like Apple, places that have already quality platforms, that's a right of entry. So yep. getting better technology, maybe a few enhancements here or there is fine. It's the experience of human beings trying to use something new. So if you come from a rotary phone or you're my kids and they can 
pull videos together in two seconds of like, I don't even know how they do it. Right. So it doesn't on their phone, right? On their phone. If yeah. I were to teach them something from my era, if you will, and they were to teach me something, either way, it's hard. So we have to take out this notion that certain people of certain ages can learn certain things. That's, I don't even believe that. I believe it's hard each time. And I believe that it has to be in bite-sized chunks. And it, it, it can't be, uh, let me go to the old training class for four hours and take notes and then go do it. You need a five minute bit here. You need a 10 minute bit here. It's how we use a Lego, frankly. You, you're able to break things down and, and go someplace, go do it. Click here now to learn how it sounds like, or click here if you're stuck. You do it today. Like my kids, my daughter puts together full, she puts together pianos, movie projectors like how'd you do that she said i just I just youtube it so that's for me it's less about the actual platform it's more about can you break it down for all levels of humans in bite-sized chunks and do it more frequently i'm doing this right now with jp morgan wealth and we're, we're we're happy to be in the middle of a rollout of a new platform and literally writing the training well i'm not right i have a great team that's we're both all we're all writing that isn't even the part of it. It is how we can we deliver it in bite-sized chunks and we're learning that the, the good and the bad of what's working and not working. So that's probably a longer answer, but I'm quite passionate about that one. So I'm curious, um, do you have any frame of reference in terms of what percentage of meetings um, in terms of kind of regular quarterly meetings are, are, do you believe the steady state for what will be virtual versus in-person or is it just kind of all over the place? Well, it's changing. So I, I, so right now, I would say we're we're pretty split down the middle, uh, maybe half and half. Where we've gotten, we've been back for a while. We were always a company of coming back and and supporting vaccination and such, like just to get our employees back. And we had the branches open; they didn't close. Right. So um, we've always been proponent of being in the office when you're in a client-facing business. Right. When you look at the corporate, the home office, right, we had more flexibility. And so over time, it shifted where it was much more virtual than, than it would be face-to-face. -face. And now we're about at half. I, for the future, I can't predict it. I don't ever see it, at least let's say in my tenure career, yeah. right? So let's, while well, I'm in the workforce, I don't necessarily see a day where you just have to go travel and do everything that you did before. In some cases, there are some places you need a team camaraderie. You're meeting people for the first time, and we will continue to do that. Right. Um, but that's way down. It's much more acceptable, for example, if you can't make the meeting to zoom in. Yeah. So my kids are starting school on the 18th. There's a business review that day. Would I love to be in New York? Not going to be. I really like them to practice their driving that morning, and that's fine. So the it's um it's not only become more of the norm, it's more acceptable too. Yeah. So it, at one point it wouldn't have been, it would have been odd if some one person was on the call and now it's not right, odd right. anymore. That's totally consistent with what we're seeing. And, you know, really when you, when you boil it down, there's two things you, you just said. One was kind of the humanization that has happened to all of us where you were on Zoom and your children and your pet, like there, there was sort of like, we're all in this, we're all doing the best we can, right? You haven't shaved, gotten a haircut, everyone just yeah, saw you. Know, I'm trying, right? And then and then there's the, the second part of that, which I agree is this is a cultural phenomenon now, which is that at so many firms, what they're recognizing is 
hey, I'm willing to go the extra mile for my employer. I'll do what it takes. But if I can carve out that half day to bring my kids on their first day, that's super critical to me. And if I can make the meeting, which is only 30 minutes, and not have to fly halfway across the country to do it. Or pay the I'm, money. Yeah, so. and pay the money. Like, what's what's really lost? And so I think what I'm seeing is very similar, that companies are recognizing that they, everybody knows that the in-person experience has unique elements, especially for new people, that's different. But really what we're now saying is, what if we just ask the client, right? And, and for some clients, it's going to be, I want to see you once a year. Some clients is, look, I've known you for 20 years. I'm, I'm traveling. I don't need to be with you. So I, th I think that is the framework that we're seeing evolve. And it sounds like it's working for you as well. Yeah, we actually talk a lot about that in practice management when we talk about our contact with clients. And, and the one thing we teach is client preference. It can't be, because there's a lot of research that talks about the clients that have not only a plan, but also a certain touch point with their advisor, they're much more of a longer term relationship. That's an obvious point I'm making, but there's also a lot of studies to that. Um, so I do think client preference matters. And I will say, pulling on my HR strings, I can help myself. The next generation workforce, as for companies, we've got to be accommodating, not completely like you can just work, you know, some places you can't work from home all the time, but we have to be flexible for parents. And even if you're not a parent, right? Maybe you're doing something else in your life. I don't know. But like, that's all I can see right now is because all I'm doing is parenting. But totally. I have yep. to be able to capture a workforce that has, that allows some flexibility too. And I am seeing that um, companies winning on that front. So just a couple more questions, Sherry. We talked about uh, how hard it is to get, you know, really any kind of technology, any kind of new process um, embedded within a large organization like yours. I'm curious, to what extent is senior management being involved in supporting? Um, is that the critical element to make things happen? Interesting. I don't know if I call it, I would call it important. I'm not sure it's the critical element. Obviously, like if, I, you know, I'll just use a Lego's example. You need endorsement. You need advocacy from senior management. That That's going to be the, those would be the people that make the call that bring you into the company, 100%. But what really thrives is when you go to the user and it's making their life so much easier. So if, if there is a product or technology out there that I use advisor workforce, that is yeah. game changing for us. So whether it's a Lego or financial planning, whatever that is, whether with clients, where they're either using something for a client or educating themselves before they meet with the client, sure. if it saves time, energy, easy to find, um, and I know this, this, we didn't plan this, but I keep going back to a Lego. You have channels. It's easy. I want to channel on a product. I want to channel on a training. I want to hear what my peer says. I'll click here. It, I can put it on my phone. I can put it, I can listen to it. I don't have to watch it. Like it just has to be in all methods. Um, and it, so I would say the senior management's important. 100%. The most critical factor is the business case that is user-friendly for the user. Cause I, as a senior manager, I'm always going to go there first. So as, as we wrap up, I got two more questions. What, what have you learned about self-reliance? You know, just take you back to your, your early days and sort of the grit that we're talking about. What have you learned about self-reliance that um, serves you today based on where you came from? I'm, I'm probably not the best bar because if, if we ever do a, if I ever write a book on this, it's, it's quite fascinating because I'm, I'm against a lot of odds in this case, but um, 
I take life in perspective. So I just want to start there. Like nothing's really going to get, I've been through so much already that um, I've built, I have an independent mindset. I teach my children this too, like be independent first. That's right or wrong. Everybody has a different opinion, but I needed to know that I can do things on my own and be independent. Really after that, um, nothing really stresses me out. I, I just, what could possibly stress me out at this point? I have two teenagers. Isn't that enough? Um, you know, this job, trying to juggle a job and teens and life in general, relationships and whatever it is, or even just having fun. Like, so what? I live in the moment. I want to do a good job. Um, yeah, do I, I sometimes feel myself something to prove, but only to me. Um, but I just don't let things get me down and out. I don't stress out about anything anymore. I've come to that place. Um, I work hard, but I'm just not going to give up things that I care about. And um, I teach all young people when I do go back and, and talk to younger people, building an independence in, in this day and age too, because my kids won't go through what I did and I don't want them to, but I do want them to figure out things on their own and I want them to make mistakes. So making mistakes is great. I encourage it. Um, and that's really all I could say about that. So Sherry, what's the um, last business question? What do you see as the most important skill that you think advisors or um, employees in general at your firm should learn or improve today? Connection. I don't even need to think about it. And I know we keep talking about it, but I mean, I'm lifting up my phone. We, I don't know if you ever saw the Seinfeld clip where he's joking around and he says, you know, what's up with the phones now? Like we actually think it's okay why we're talking what you've had to have been there, right? People just take out the phone and literally look at it while you're talking to them. You, you might as well have a magazine right, right in front of your place right. and flip it because that's exactly what's happening, but somehow we made it okay. And yeah. no, it sounds cliche, but I, I like, you have to be in that moment. And, and even as a manager, if I have a one-on-one with someone, I will not look at my screen. I will, I will make eye contact. And you would not believe just that simple gesture of, well, let me look at, you know, I got a meeting or the phone's ringing, put it down. Don't even put it on the dinner table, put it in your pocket because it's in the dinner table, it's still out. So the phones, the emails, the, um, if an advisor or anybody, just a skill in general, whether it's your company or mine, just sits here like we're doing, making eye contact, living in the moment, you're repeating things that I said to you. You're, you are making note of what I said and you're playing them back to me. That is a connection that we're making right now over Zoom. And if every human being of all ages, of all industries could just practice that, if I could go teach a class on that, I would do it. So let me leave with this. Um, we've covered a lot of ground here. If people want to learn more about you, um, what's the best way for them to reach out to learn more about you or JP Morgan slash Chase Bank? Well, J.P. Morgan Chase, I mean, you can find that anywhere. I, I would encourage you. <laughs> like, I, I, I would have to have a whole session if you can't find us. The, uh, Chase, but we offer uh, such a great line. It's a great bank. It's a great company. It's We have so much we can do for clients. So that is an easy one. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I, there's a message. You can easily message me. I love to hear from new people. I love making those connections. Um, it's such a small world, really, as we've learned ourselves today. Um, and, you know, obviously, you can email me. That's all on LinkedIn as well. So that's the easiest way. Great. Sherry, I got to tell you, this was absolutely a pleasure. Um, it's so great 
to, as we were talking about earlier, to get to work with people whose company you actually enjoy anyway, and you would enjoy having a conversation, you know, whether it's business or personal. So thanks for making this uh, such a great time. Your story is terrific and, and one that um, I'm looking forward to amplifying within our community. And I'm sure you'll be hearing from um, some of the people in, in the community who hear about it. So thanks for doing what you do. And thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to The Adapter's Advantage, a podcast from Alego. Stay connected by subscribing to the show at alego.com forward slash podcast, leaving us a rating and comment and sharing episodes you love. That helps us bring you more conversations about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember that one new idea can change your life.